This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The wildfire update from this afternoon. And there is more good news, I guess. Mixed news, really, but good news because we do see a break in the weather. Weather patterns are changing. It's going to be cooler this week, especially in areas like the central Okanagan. But we have also found out that the damage from the big wildfire in West Kelowna, the McDougal Creek wildfire, well, that property damage number has gone up. As more assessment has been made, we welcome Calvin Hector again to the show. He is a reporter with AM 1150 in Kelowna. Calvin, great to have you with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me. I understand that things are looking much better, I guess, right now with cooler weather in the forecast for the week. But also we have learned that those properties, more of them, have been destroyed by the wildfire in West Kelowna. So let's give this a bit of an update and reset right now on a Monday afternoon. What are we looking at? What are we learning? Yes, they did add another eight properties uh, to that list of, of anything damaged or heavily or destroyed or heavily damaged from McDougal Creek fire. Um, nothing changing in the Lake Country Kelowna area. Of course, those fires were held or are held right now. So good news in that sense of, of course, all the uh, evacuation orders were lifted for, for Lake Country and Kelowna. So most people have returned to their properties, minus the ones, of course, falling under the category. Um, but they did add eight more properties. Of course, the most heavily damaged area from these fires appears to be the West Kelowna area, which um, includes the West Bank First Nation and like the RDCO, Regional District of Central Okanagan, the West Electoral Area. Combined, there's about 170 properties over there that have been damaged or destroyed from the wildfire. So quite a quite a large number. Uh, I mean, it could have been much larger. You, you go driving around on the west side and you see how close that fire line got to some homes. And, and Brolin mentioned it in some of the uh, earlier uh, emergency operations centers. Uh, Brolin, of course, the uh, fire chief for West Kelowna. Just how close it got literally to people's backyards. It's amazing to see how many properties they did save. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned that because we often concentrate on the big numbers being the numbers of properties destroyed. But there were things, in fact, saved, even in the worst area, Ground Zero, West Kelowna. What are some of the things we know that uh, really came out as uh, being okay after the firefighters stepped in and did an incredible job? What was saved? Well, uh, again, just a ton of uh, homes, of course, uh, and and I, it's hard to give particular areas because there's still some areas off limits, uh, still some evacuation orders still in place for the West Kelowna area. Um, but the lower lying uh, areas, of course, people have been allowed back home. But uh, it, 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 I'm just I'm just going to say again, just the picture, the picture of going through the properties that are uh, people going back to their homes now. And seeing that the burn line went up to their fence, I just had a, a fellow reporter from another news station here in Kelowna send me video of you look to your right and it's burnt forest and complete devastation. But you look to your left and there's a street of homes all still standing. So, again, just it's good to see what's been protected and that the really in West Kelowna, seeing that only seven is just under 70 homes uh, as of right now destroyed or damaged by this wildfire is a, is a really low number. You know, there is something called survivor's guilt, and I often wonder if that comes into play at an area like West Kelowna, where, as you describe very well, you look to one direction, you see all the damage, you look to another direction, and things are simply beautiful. And there's no rhyme or reason for it. It just is. 
Have you heard of how people are dealing with different emotions, Calvin? It's very mixed around here because, of course, you said survivor's guilt. So there's the people who were on evacuation order, and once they've been allowed to return home, see everything's A-OK. And, of course, there's that big sigh of relief from them. But then there's the people who, unfortunately, have already known in advance the the state of their property. Um, Our central Okanagan Regional District with their emergency operations center put up a link to search up your address to see if you're included in the in the damaged or destroyed properties. So people had the chance to to go ahead of time uh, and see. And, and this just goes to the fact that who knows how long it'll be before some people are allowed to go back to where their property once stood or where it's still standing. Um, because Jason Broland in this morning's conference uh, with the Emergency Operations Center saying, we want to get people back home, but we we can't do it until it's safe to do so. And he said the extent of some of the hydro lines and, and power poles that just are knocked down. It's, it's going to be a while before the infrastructure is put back in to get people safely back into some of those harder hit areas. You know, Calvin, we often talk about uh, the number of people that are evacuees. And that's always nice because it's an official number, people that are registered. I often wonder, and especially in the housing market that we're in today, if there are people who were unofficially living in some of the areas around West Kelowna. I know it's a wealthier neighborhood compared to many others in the province. But do you think that there may have been some people that weren't accounted for that are now homeless, that are going to add to some of the homeless issues that we know exist in Kelowna itself? I, I do believe so. And you know what? I, I worry about that myself being a renter. And I actually am in a situation right now where I might have to go look for a new rental property. And with the homes that have been destroyed, who knows how many of those people were renting, how many people owned. So it's just going to cluster up again, people now looking for new living accommodations. And, and to talk about uh, maybe people not really registered, well, one big property, and it's just considered one property in this number, but that's actually the Okanagan Resort. Um, there was 150 units in that one resort. However, it's only considered one property. So think about all the people living in those units or renting those units who are now displaced because that entire property uh, burnt to the ground. Some of the earlier pictures from this fire to come out uh, just days after in the, in the daylight, once you could see the extent of the damage, was pictures of the entire resort gone. So I, I feel for those people, and I think it is just going to add to the issue of of is there enough uh, resources for for housing in the area? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Uh, When you talk about properties and properties evacuated, it's much like a power outage. A property is a property. It's not a person. And uh, we always have to use a bit of a multiplier on top of that. And some of those multipliers, as you point out, with one resort, boy, that could be huge. Do we have a sense, though, Calvin, of uh, where people now are mostly living at their evacuees? Is it in hotels? Is it in uh, uh, staying with relatives? Do we know kind of like the breakdown, even if it's anecdotal? Yeah, I don't have exact numbers in front of me, but uh, just hearing from some people who, who evacuated, they went down to the coast. So they went down to Vancouver in that area. Some people, of course, uh, with coworkers who might have not been in evacuation alert order areas, uh, taking people in. Um, who knows to the extent of how long they've stayed for. Um, of course, hotels, those are one of the major, major playing partners in this. And of course, a ton of partnering hotels uh, taking in evacuees, which which I think is amazing. Just the fact that on, on a, having to turn on a dime, you have all these tourists and, and it's the height of tourist season. And then having to all of a sudden change into uh, just a mode of let's get evacuees in here. Sorry, tourists, you got to go home. And it's a hit they take. But to open up the doors and, and get people in, I, I think there's going to be a mix. I know uh, one person actually set up a website to say if you're displaced from your home and or if you want to be someone with space in your home to take in evacuees, they, they built a website for that. So there are resources out there, thankfully, for those sort of people and just people coming out of the woodwork to, to help where they can. Really good point. Uh, one that has me kind of knocking on my coconut and trying to wrap it, wrap my head around this and I can't come up with an answer uh, the province has now lifted its ban on tourism and travel to West Kelowna. But is that realistic? I know it's one thing for the industry, the tourism industry, to say, come on, come on back. But West Kelowna itself, can you be a tourist going to that area? 
Well, I think the big tip of the cap is going to be coming with the September long weekend to see how uh, busy it gets in this area. I know it's felt quiet the last week, of course, uh, just getting out of these wildfires and, and kind of starting the recovery phase. It has been a little more quiet, um, but we'll see with the, with, the, with the Labor Day long weekend. If, it, if it's busy, then we'll see that people are ready to come back already. It's starting to feel a little more normal, of course, uh, again, pointing back to survivors' guilt, just having not really been affected by the fires, it, it seems more normal. But obviously, for some who have have had gone through the devastation of losing their home uh, or property to this fire, it, it might not feel normal for a long time. Kelvin, thanks for, so much for joining us. You've done a fantastic job. Your descriptions really help us understand things, especially here on the coast. And uh, I wish you all the best in the weeks and months ahead. Thank you for having me. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. And jazz is off. I'm Bruce Claggett in this afternoon. Well, we certainly lost a TV icon over the weekend. Bob Barker, the Price is Right host for many a year, had that silky smooth command and pesh sense of humor. And of course, he was an advocate for animal welfare, this making him a beloved fixture on TV for some 35 years He died at the age of 99. There's so many things you can say about Bob Barker, but let's bring in Rick Forchuk just to take a trip down memory lane. Rick, of course, TV Week Magazine columnist, CKNW contributor, friend of the show. Rick, great to be with you. Hey, Bruce. Great to be here. Bob Barker, so many things you can say. He started off in the business of radio, went on to television, uh, was an extraordinary host. What else? What else would you add to that? Well, I would add a number of things. Uh, You mentioned, of course, his commitment to um, pet control with spaying and neutering of animals, and he would say that at the end of every single show, uh, to spay and neuter your pets. That was great. Um, There are some really cool quotes. Now, his wife died in 1981, and he never remarried. He had a girlfriend, but he never remarried. And uh, she had a terrific quote Uh, when she was interviewed prior to her death. She said, uh, when asked, what was the attributes of the length of your marriage. You've been married a long time. It's a Hollywood marriage. Uh, To what do you attribute that? And she said, well, it's all about just a couple of things. I love Bob Barker, and Bob loves Bob Barker. And he did. Yeah, that is true. And uh, that's often true of uh, people who are large TV icons and personalities. Uh, It does come through, but it also gives you a sense, almost like a confidence in going ahead with the show. He did love Bob Barker. Um, But there were other stories where he would just, uh, people lined up to see the show. And The Price is Right was a hot ticket for many a year. But he would come out and talk to some of the people that were, you know, going to go into his audience, which I think is pretty incredible. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And he was very much like that. Uh, His fans loved him. He loved his fans. And he did those kinds of things. He would sometimes do his own audience warm-ups in the studio uh, just to get everybody going, get all the juices running. And yes, he would go out on the sidewalk. And anybody who's been to either uh, Hollywood or uh, New York where they do big talk shows and game shows has probably been in this situation. You get an opportunity. Somebody will put the finger on you on the street and say, hey, how'd you like to be in the audience of fill in this name show of the show here? And uh, you go there and and you wind up standing in line on a sidewalk for sometimes hours. But, hey, it gets you close to show business. And Bob used to come out and talk with people, as you said, Bruce. He would talk with them, get to know them. And I really see him as kind of the last of the iconic game show hosts. Um, Bob Barker, Monty Hall, Alex Trebek, Pat Sajak is still with us, Uh, Bert Convey, who a lot of people won't remember, but these were the best of the best of the best. Uh, I don't see 
for example, uh, Drew Carey, as being anything like Bob Barker. He's taken over the show. Uh, all due respect to Drew Carey, just doesn't work for me, never has had. Um, and when you look at uh, people like Barker and the the gravitas with which he carried himself, uh, I don't know that we'll see anything like that ever again. He was a remarkable man. He was very, very self-confident. We've made that point. Uh, but he was also very bright, very smart. Uh, he had a couple of instances where um, he had uh, sexual harassment charges brought against him. Nothing ever stuck. And uh, uh, he, he was quite uh, quite open about uh, his feeling that these were all consensual relationships. Um, but he was a strong, strong player on that stage. I will miss him more than anything just because it closes a chapter. Uh, I don't think we'll go this way again. We won't go back and see this again. Uh, great, great guy, great performer, great game show host. And um, when interviewed a couple of times, he said, for example, uh, his job was easy because it was all about money. Uh, all it was about was the prices, just the prices. Yeah. Of course, and, there's so much more than that, but, yeah, uh, but he he would put it that way. But I think one of the differences back in the Bob Barker era of game show hosts is they had a certain sense of class, a certain sense of uh, being larger than life, and certainly not like today where you have many more comedians being the talk show host. Yeah, and they don't know how to dress. You're right. And they don't know how to carry themselves. Uh, they don't have that same uh, iconic look and feel about them. And uh, again, I don't mean any disrespect to these guys. They're all making a living. Uh, you know, we've, we've got a, a local person who's still with us, thank goodness. He was a great game show host, Wayne Cox. Wayne Cox, uh, absolutely. Wayne did a couple of game shows. He did uh, for the Fox-owned and operated stations, a show called Talk About, which ran on CBC television as well, and uh, one called Acting Crazy, which still shows shows up on the game show channel. Ed Wayne had that same sort of feel about him. Uh, he was kind of uh, recruited into the game show hosting business by Wink Martindale. Wink Martindale, also a great game show host. And Wayne, to this very day, when you sit and talk with him, just has that uh, kind of, he's an icon and he's humble, uh, but he's very smart as well, kind of a guy. So uh, game show hosts are a special breed. I like them all. And uh, I like the older ones the most. Yeah. You know, the thing about Wayne Cox and a great guy too but uh wayne came from radio from a radio station known as cknw he did that very thing that's exactly right yeah so you know still still hope for you bruce <laughs> don't have the wayne cox hair uh but that being said uh when you talk about somebody like a bob barker and you talk about him being so confident and really loving bob barker he did on rare occasion have a chance to actually step back and poke fun at the character of Bob Barker. One of those was his in a Vancouver movie, Happy Gilmore, where he Absolutely. came up to our city. And uh, what a great role. It was a great role, and all of those who bumped into him along the way, people in restaurants while he was here, uh, people at the airport, uh, all said the same thing. What an honest to goodness, nice man he was. And uh, yes, he got into that fist fight with Adam Sandler and um, did a, a great job with Very it. Very funny. Sandler's, Sandler's comment on the loss of Bob Barker when asked was, uh, well, he beat the crap out of me, so uh, I like him, but he really beat the crap out of me. And it's worth uh, actually checking on YouTube, uh, Bob Barker and uh, Happy Gilmore, just to see that scene. It is a hilarious scene. And uh, that's where I think, you know, the guy had a chance to step back and actually understand who he was in, in order to perform that way. I think that's a real personality at the max. Yeah, it's true. He appeared in uh, a few movies and some television series, always as an exaggerated version of himself. So he wasn't afraid, Bruce, to your point. He wasn't afraid to poke fun at himself and to uh, make like I'm the big ego guy here and just watch me. But he would do that. He would laugh along with everybody else. And uh, again, just uh, be the classic sort of thing. And we shall never pass this way again. Bob Barker gone at the age of 99, just shy of 100, as close as you can get without going over. It's true. Okay. Rick Forchuk, thanks so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for spending this portion of the afternoon with us. Bruce Claggett in for Jazz. And it looks like we're getting a break, at least in the southern half of the province, with some cooler conditions as we deal with a terrible summer of fire around the province. 
But there are some stories emerging and some stories that show that we're taking different directions in trying to cope with what has been a brutal summer. And there's this one out today, this story. The Bush Creek East Wildfire, while it's still burning 43,000 hectares in size, but the BC Wildfire Service has deployed a new resource to help contain it. That resource is civilians. Yeah, around 17 Shoe Swap area residents sent to the front lines today, and they were trained over the weekend and are now being paid for their efforts and their expertise going into an area that they know so well. Let's pick up on that one and some other things happening with this situation by bringing in Emergency Management Minister Bowen Ma. Good afternoon, Bowen. Hi there. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I know it's been a long summer of so many stories when it comes to damage and loss of uh, loss of structures and evacuations. But are we now on the edge of seeing a little bit of a turn that we can do things like allow civilians to go into areas like Bush Creek? Well, an organized cooperative community response is absolutely key in all areas of the province. And what we saw up in the Shushwap was a, a desire from local community members to be a part of the fight against wildfires. Part of the challenge, of course, in doing so is that uh, disorganized, well-intentioned uh, firefighting efforts can get in the way of BC Wildfire Service uh, work as they're doing it. it. It can limit the kinds of tactics that can, can be used, for instance, like aerial water bombing or backburning can't be done when you have people in the way. But if it's coordinated, it can be very successful. And so I'm really grateful that BC Wildfire Service and local uh, community members were able to dialogue about this over the last week and get trained up and and yes we we do have some of those community members on the line working with the bc wildfire service now well when i get the impression that this is doing two things it's not only helping with the wildfire effort in that area but it's also putting to rest some of the concerns and frustration that some of the residents had in the area that they knew better than some of the bc wildfire crews coming in you know, we all have a common enemy in this, and that is the wild. Those that's the wildfires that are threatening our communities. But in order for us to be effective against those wildfires, we've got to be working together, and we've got to be coordinated. And and that's what we're seeing on the ground right now. I know in your news conference this afternoon, you rightly pointed out, even though the weather is better in some areas, things can change in a moment. What do you mean by that? Well, as of this morning, we have more than 8,000 people on evacuation order and nearly 54,000 people on evacuation alert. And this is over 20,000 people fewer on evacuation order than there were last week. So it is an improvement. But we are not through the woods yet. We're not out of the woods yet. The wildfire season is not over. We're at the end of August. Um, In previous years, we have seen the wildfire season extend into the fall. Um, The the southern interior is stabilizing a bit with cooler temperatures and some rain, but uh, we are anticipating a risk of dry lightning in coastal regions and on the island, as well as um, challenges in terms of hot and dry weather up in the north. So we have seen some fires return to life um, up in the north that were previously uh, under control. On Friday, I had a chance to talk with former Premier Christy Clark, and she said, and she was echoing something that she said on social media, she said the province has done a terrible job in communicating and planning for what turned out to be a terrible forest fire season. What do you say about that? Do you think that the province was caught off guard? I think the wildfire season has been incredibly difficult for many people in many communities, not only during the last week under a provincial state of emergency, but through all of the local and regional emergencies that we have been responding to since mid-April. And my focus is on the response and the people who need us. And uh, quite frankly, I don't know what Chrissy Clark says uh, has said, and and it's the furthest thing on my mind right now because our focus is on those communities. 
we run coordination uh, meetings on a regular basis with communities. We offer um, public press conferences on a regular basis as well. We do, uh, at first it was weekly and then twice a week and then daily updates for all MLAs across the province. Um, regular communication with uh, local chairs, mayors, First Nations. There's a lot going on, and that's where our focus is right now. When all is said and done and everything is back to as normal as normal can be, there will be an opportunity to reflect on the response and what happened. Do you think there are lessons that can be learned? And do you think there's something that uh, might even change the direction of your ministry in terms of maybe even setting up an emergency program that's different than the provincial emergency program, but is set up to coordinate responses to disasters? You know, I think that we always have to be learning all of the time. And absolutely, there will be lessons learned coming out of this wildfire season, as there are often lessons learned coming out of every wildfire season and every hazard season. And keep in mind that our province is facing not just the hazard of wildfires, but also extreme drought, extreme heat, extreme cold. We've got flooding. We've got storms. We've got ice storms. We've got avalanches, tsunamis, and um, and earthquakes to contend with as well. So we have to be constantly working to increase our level of preparedness and doing the work that we have to do to mitigate the impact of those disasters before they happen. But we also have to do the absolute important work of driving down the greenhouse gas emissions that cause climate change to begin with. That is absolutely critical. We cannot lose sight of that. Understand very strong message with that. Here's one that I do have more of a question about, and that is the alert mm-hmm. system in BC. Are you satisfied that people are getting the message when things like this happen, when we're under a state of emergency, getting it in a timely matter? So we do have uh, a alert system, but it's a national system that the provinces uh, are partners in, in using as well. Um, the broadcast intrusive alert, it sends messages directly to people's phones. It sends it through the airwaves, through radio. It sends it through um, cable as well. But it is only one tool in our uh, toolbox for communication. We do work very closely with local governments and communities about how best to reach people in their communities, uh, given whatever information needs to be uh, sent out there. I mean, the media is certainly uh, a very important partner in this as well. Some communities have uh, their own Internet-based apps that they use. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we also um, work with uh, work through social media and, and all different channels. Um, and at the end of the day as well, if there is a tactical evacuation and we need people to get out and we don't have time to use all of these different tools, the most fundamental way that we communicate with people in communities is literally by going door to door and getting people out. So it does take all kinds of communication. Um, and we can't rely on just one. Okay, I appreciate that. And Bo and Ma, remember, CKNW's 50,000 watts can reach all over the province, and there's always somebody here. If you're in that state, you can always phone us. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for, for that note. As is off this afternoon, Bruce Claggett, glad to be with you. You know, here's one. How is BC Ferries going to look into the future to resolve some of the current issues that we've discussed over the course of the summer? Things like, uh, oh, delays and uh, staff not turning up on long weekends, peak period times, although the August long weekend was okay. Uh, Other things like uh, constant breakdowns, which also relate to the former. Well, Rob Shaw is a political correspondent for Czech News. He's also written about this for publications, including Business in Vancouver, and joins us now. Rob, you're no stranger to ferries, both as a columnist and also as a user of BC Ferries. Where do we go from here with what is developing into a bit of a reputation? Yeah, well, I mean, BC Ferries uh, kind of has two things going on at the same time. It's it's hard to sort of keep track of the dichotomy of BC Ferries. On the one hand, on paper, it's bringing in record customers, record passengers, uh, and record profit. It's new and latest financial figures that just came out last week show it uh, has doubled its revenue uh, from this time last year in the first quarter of the year. So, on paper, it looks, you know, 
like a healthy corporation. In reality, a lot of those numbers don't reflect what we've seen this summer with those breakdowns uh, with uh, an ongoing labor uh, negotiation to pay its staff more to prevent the sort of labor shortages that we've seen with vessels that need to be replaced uh, and all the different things that BC Ferries has to deal with. So it has uh, kind of juggling both of those at the same time. And then the third thing that it plans on juggling is this visioning process for the future that will start this fall. The public in, in British Columbia is going to be asked to tell BC Ferries what it wants the corporation to look like in decades ahead. So not just now, which is, um, you know, probably for most people, what they'd want now is just a functional service that isn't a mess uh, on the big holiday weekends. But in the future, how, where should the ships run? How big should they be? Should they be car ships or more uh, walk-on space? Or, you know, what do they look like? Where do they go? What kind of fuel do they use? And that process uh, is going to form what BC Ferries takes to the government next year uh, for what will be a significant ask of money, I think, uh, for sure. Oh, yeah, I find that a little bit surprising. I think most people couldn't care less what the shape of the ship is going to be, if it's going to be white or blue, and uh, what food is going to be served in the galley. What they do care about is, are they going to get onto the boat and get over there in time, and how much are they going to have to pay? Uh, it yeah, almost well, seems to me that they're going into the future with a notion that they are this prime service that's running without a glitch? Uh, well, I think they're pretty, I mean, uh, I attended their annual general meeting last week and th- there were admissions of the obvious, which is that it's uh, BC Ferry's reputation has taken a big hit this summer, that people find the service unreliable, that its wait times are increasing, that its canceled sailings are increasing, that it's, it's struggling right now. And, you know, BC Ferry's argument is it's partly struggling because it's facing a crush of people, more people than ever before. More people use BC ferries in a year than go through Vancouver International Airport, which is one of the largest in North America. So, you know, BC ferries is arguing it needs to to expand more ships, bigger ships, different types of ships. What do they look like? What what should they look like in terms of like the ratio to drive on cars versus passengers, pets? You know how the transit system is incorporated. We have ferry terminals in the middle of nowhere, essentially, in Metro Vancouver and uh, Greater Victoria, we stick people, we tell people to walk on, they have to get out there, then they get on the other side in Sawasan or, or uh, Horseshoe Bay and have to navigate a bus system to get anywhere close to mass transit. And why? Why is that? Are there better terminal locations, better types of ferries that could run from the downtown cores? I think BC Ferries is looking at that too, and, and uh, that kind of reimagining of what it might look like um, as we move from a car-based system to maybe something better and more in the future. And I, and I think that's kind of what they're hoping to get from people in this consultation. Yeah, Rob, I almost wonder if it's uh, BC Ferries looking for the customers and the base it wants or the base it's got. And when I say that, I also mean that uh, there are areas of growth, substantial growth on Vancouver Island. I think of mid-island population growth uh, just going up uh, tremendously. And then there are these areas, uh, some of the smaller islands and the so-called minor routes, where they don't have the population base, but they have cuts in service and people that really uh, are not confident in the system. How How does the corporation square that? Well, you know, it's a delicate balance. The minor routes don't make any money. The major routes do. And so you have to provide service to the minor islands um, that will never be good enough for the Gulf Islands and, and, and the southern, or just the islands off of, uh, off of uh, Vancouver Island, like Texada and uh, Quadra and all of those type of islands. We heard from a lot of the ferry advisory chairs in those communities at the AGM saying they need more ships, but they also don't like the terminals, which are ancient the terminals need to be bigger, but not in a way that harms the environment of the island. So they're stuck in a different issue. And on the minor routes, um, you know, the major routes are where the crush of passengers really are uh, in basically, you know, two locations, three if you count the second terminal in Nanaimo, uh, and then two over in Vancouver. And it's just like, it is like any business, but it's but it's kind of unique in the sense that uh, you know, a quarter of BC Ferries money comes from the provincial government and the rest comes from 
fares for vehicles and passengers and gift shop or kind of on service revenue, you know, buying a white spot burger on the ferry Mm -hmm. or choosing that's where they make their money. And they are limited in how much they can increase their fares because the government doesn't want them to increase their fares. And so the government kind of kicks in money here and there, tries to browbeat them a little bit. Don't do this. Don't do that. They're a private company on paper, a public company in reality. I'm part of the highway system in the real world. And navigating all of those dynamics yeah. is hard. If you ran this as a totally private business, we'd be paying double, you know, the fares for BC fares to make it make sense on paper. And but in some places be- around the world, they do, which is yeah, surprising yeah. for uh, for an equal service. Rob, I appreciate it. There's so many issues wrapped up in this, and you've highlighted many of them. And it's a good read, by the way. Uh, business in Vancouver is where I read it, but it's in the other publications too. Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Thanks so much, Rob. Okay, take care. Dita does, and Bruce Claggett in the host chair for Jazz. You know, we're a week and a bit away from going back to school, and in many a case, that includes back to school for post-secondary students. And many of them will be looking to get, you know, a reliable but cheap car, maybe a used car. Here comes the dilemma. The used car market is still in a shortage right now, shortage of vehicles, this even as the automotive sector is recovering from those supply chain woes that we all heard about, the ones that plagued the industry back at the start of the pandemic. So what's going on now? Why is there such a demand for used cars? It's a hot market, they say. Yeah, hot meaning that there is, you know, not so many cars and a whole lot of demand for them. Well, let's bring in Jeremy Cato. He's the automotive journalist for CatoCarGuy.com, a well-known fixture on TV, and an expert when it comes to everything cars. Jeremy, thanks so much for being with us. Hi, Bruce. Nice to be here. You know, Jeremy, I I just take one sector, just taking a look at, uh, like, students buying cars, but it's right across the board. Used cars, hot. How come? Uh, Well, because people can't afford new new ones. Uh, I mean... If you look at the average uh, transaction price for a new car in Canada right now, uh, it's uh, topping about $66,000 for a new car. So what do you do when you can't afford a new car and you can't afford the payments on a, on a new car because those 0% financing deals are all gone and interest rates are very high? Well, you look for a used car. But even here in British Columbia, according to Auto Trader. The average used car price here in June, $44,000, but I have a tip for you. Mm. If you want to take a little vacation in the Maritimes, the average used car price in the Maritimes is $34,000. So maybe it's worth buying a plane ticket or finding a car out there, buying a plane ticket and looking around in the Maritimes. That's a $10,000 difference. Oh, yeah. And at that price, it's worth even taking a trip and uh, putting yourself in a hotel for a couple of nights. Um, It's interesting. Are we finding this, though, with all cars or just uh, uh, some types of cars? Uh, You're finding with all cars. You know, I I was looking at uh, looking into this recently myself and I looked at, um, for example, a large Lexus SUV that's about 10 years old that uh, I know one, uh, one person, one purchaser, who's, who paid three and a half years ago $26,000 for it. This is just before the pandemic. And has been offered a couple of times now by neighbors uh, in the low 30s. I mean, there's been, there's been inflation in used cars. And it's not going to slow down because, well, the, first of all, during the, uh, the so-called the, uh, the pandemic, we, we did have, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a Production was, was slowed down because of semiconductors. But here's another piece that doesn't get any coverage at all or very little is greedflation, which is automakers for quite some time now have been, um, because there's some of their supply of parts has been limited, they've been pushing all of what they've got into the most expensive models. And that explains one of the reasons why um, cars today are so expensive is that the those somewhat rare parts, the semiconductors, have for quite some time now been pushed into the most expensive models. That You might call that greedflation. I've heard that term used. Um, 
So the, the solution is you're probably looking for a solution, and um, there's no silver bullet, but we can talk about that. You know, it's interesting that you should mention that. I also find, and maybe it's just me, uh, I like looking around at the price of cars, even when I'm not shopping for a car. Uh, but I see that um, the trim levels are kind of, the gap between the trims has narrowed, meaning that uh, things that used to be optional are no longer optional. They're just kind of expected in lower trims, things like air conditioning. Is that a uh, clever marketing ploy that's happened in the industry? <laughs> uh well, if you talk to the manufacturers and their dealers, they will tell you that people don't want stripper cars. Uh, I don't believe it. I, I think uh, people buy what's available uh, within reason. And so, you know, you can't buy a car with roll-up windows. I, I'm not sure that there's a car for sale in Canada that doesn't have air conditioning. Um, but the vast, vast majority of do. do. And then, of course, you know, consumer tastes, I guess, go into this as well. Um, consumers have have uh, pushed away from small economy fuel, uh, economy cars, compact cars, fuel efficient cars, and even in the smaller size models, they're looking at small crossover wagons or SUVs. And uh, most manufacturers immediately slap a five thousand dollar or more premium on something that they can call a crossover, even though it's built on, uh, you know, a, a, a compact car uh, uh, chassis. So. <laughs> You know, some of this is consumers don't want to drive cars, cars, cars. They want to drive SUVs and crossovers. And then, of course, you know, manufacturers are are building cars with as many toys and goodies as possible because that's where the profits are. I mean, it's a market economy. I I guess what I would really say is that if you want to change this, uh, don't buy a car for a while. That's not a good solution for a lot of people. Um, But if you can hold off, uh, my best advice is hold off as long as you possibly can. For many of us, a decision to buy a car comes down to the point where the mechanic bills just outpace the, uh, you know, the everything else. Uh, and it makes more sense to go and buy that car. But there's also a sweet point, I would imagine, for someone that is younger or somebody that's helping somebody younger buy that first car, the used car. And the sweet point being, you know, a few years old, but not too old because you don't want them hitting all the problems. And uh, and maybe a car that is nice, but not too nice. What do you recommend in that situation? Something for like a student going back to school. Well, if you can, if you've got a, a student and a, and a parent or an uncle or aunt or whomever's helping out, if you can live with something that's not sexy, that's not too cool. Um, you will find those cars are much, much cheaper. So, you know, 10, uh, 15-year-old Oldsmobiles, um, not very sexy, but, but they, you know, you can, you can get one for under $10,000, and it's, a, it's your basic commuter car, and you're, if it's a parent making this decision, decision, your kid may look at you like you've come from Mars. Um, but I can tell you what I, what I did for my kid when he was an undergrad at, at UBC I went out and found a 20-year-old Honda CRV, and uh, this was a few years ago now. But there, there are lots of them on the marketplace, and they're reasonably inexpensive and super cheap to fix because Honda sold so many of them. So look for a high-volume used car. If it's got to be an SUV, something like a Toyota RAV4, a mm-hmm. Honda CRV, a Ford Escape, and if you can live with a boring old car that baby boomers would have liked. Then you start looking for older Chevrolets and older Oldsmobiles. Now, this Oldsmobile brand doesn't even exist anymore, so you will find you can find some of those things for just a few thousand dollars. They're just not very cool. <laughs> There's a price to be cool. Love it, Jeremy. Thanks so much. Great advice and uh, something to keep in mind when we're shopping and around think for about that, that great trip car. To Halifax, you know, and, and take a trip to Halifax, see the country, get yourself a car. All right. Jeremy Cato, automotive journalist at CatoCarGuy.com. First, clag it in for jazz. Hey, did you hear that in the forecast? Possible thunder showers. Boy, things are taking a bit of a turn. It's out of the pool and almost back to school. Question comes up, how can you help your children with things like friendship making, social media, all those type of things have become even more of a challenge when they head back to class. 
Well, one of the people that's looked into this is Dr. Omori Makami, a professor in the Department of Psychology at UBC. Had a chance to chat with her and ask, well, many parents have kids going back to school, like my own son is going from elementary school to grade 8 high school. How do we set them up for success? Well, it's uh, going to any school, whether it's um, moving from elementary to high school or just just move, maybe you moved communities and starting a new school. It's you know, it's often an adjustment for youth because they need to um, reassess their their social lives and their social schedules. And I think that this is probably a good time for parents to just have uh, an open-minded and open-ended chat with their child or teenager about um, what they what they liked about their friendships and their social life at the previous location, at the previous school. And so what aspects were they did they want to keep or were they hoping that they could keep in the new school? As well as if there are things that they didn't like about the friendships and relationships that they had in the previous school. And you know what what so then what might they like to change in the new school and if they have any ideas about uh, how they might do that. And I think that parents should try to um, well, keep it age appropriate because, you know, for, for a little kid, you'd be asking it in different, like in slightly different wording than with a teenager. And also just try to be, try to listen and be really open-minded and non-judgmental because I think that's another thing, especially with teenagers. Sometimes they are very sensitive to the idea that maybe they'll start talking about their friends or their social goals and the parents will jump on them immediately and try to correct them and give a whole bunch of advice. Uh, and that, that can shut the teenager down sometimes from talking further. And friends change at different points and sometimes even a student, uh, an adolescent may look at a friend they've had for a long time and suddenly that friend is with a different group. Well, I think it's um, sometimes... It, well, I think even as adults, we can all empathize with that or remember a time or feeling where we felt like we were, we were left behind or people who we used to be friends with had, had moved on in one way or another, whether it's physically or just, just emotionally, moved on to a different stage in their life or different types of friends and that feeling of being, being left behind. Um, most adults have had that at some point in their life and it's, it's, it's awful. So I would say, you know, to the extent that adults can try to get in touch with that feeling and empathy for how a youth might feel in this situation, and also, you know, youth may not have the perspective that adults have about, you know, that this is natural or that you'll you'll meet new friends or or meet new people. Um, and so, yeah, to try to approach, I'd say to try to approach the situation with empathy. If it, to the extent that it feels appropriate or age appropriate, I, you know, uh, adults can share experiences that share, share that they times in their life that they felt similarly left out or left behind. Um, sometimes that can help teens or kids feel more understood or or feel like it's a safer space to open up about their feelings. I think uh, online social communication, social media, that's a reality for almost uh, any student that's got a computer or a mobile phone. Uh, what do we do as parents to make sure that the relationships that they have and the communication that they have is as healthy as possible when it comes to their well-being and how they fit in? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's uh, the digital world, I think, is here to stay. And I think um, you know, most adults... Um, have the you know have the growing understanding and recognition that uh, they will never fully understand or be able to keep up with the uh, the latest platforms or the, the the you know the the lingo the ways that that their teenagers and you know even preteens now are uh, are using are using these digital platforms. So I would say though that uh, parents hopefully you know try to not be afraid of it. You know, it's not it's not the monster, it's not the mysterious beast. Uh, it's just another way that teens and preteens are using to communicate. And so sometimes, you know, as sometimes it's it can be used in very healthy ways that strengthen existing and deepen existing friendships and um, supportive relationships. And it can also be used in in negative ways, uh, as people are aware. So. 
I would say, you know, approach it not as something to be really afraid of. Just approach it how you would approach any new social situation. I was surprised when I picked up my friend, my friend, my son from school. He was with his best friend, and they both had left the class together and were going in separate directions for the day. And that's great, but they just kind of separated out and didn't say goodbye to each other. And I thought, wow, that's really odd. And I talked with some other parents and they said, oh, yeah, but they're always connected. They're always kind of online. So they see kind of goodbyes as different and they don't really have to say goodbye. It's a different sort of social interaction. Do you see any others like this? Well, yes. I mean, there's definitely, there's there's clearly ways that uh, digital communication is, is different from face-to-face communication, especially or especially when you are talking about social media like you know i mean some people have talked about how just the whole the whole public nature or you know the fact that like what you post can be seen by hundreds or even thousands of friends or followers in an you know in an instant and then it can be looked you know people can look back at it like weeks or you know days or even weeks later so there's a certain like visualness there's a certain publicness um, and there's a certain way that information gets out really fast. But that can heighten both the positive and the negative aspects of social media. You know, so, so for instance, if you've got good friends and you've got something good happening to you, then being able to get the word out about that and get a lot of genuine support is great. But of course, if it's you know if it's not so good or you're being left out of something, or of course there's there's a, there's online bullying, then that having that taking place on a very public stage and often a very permanent stage, can be more damaging. I know as parents and as teachers, we often worry about students and how they're doing. What are things that we can look out for? What is kind of like the news you can use when it comes to telltale signs when we should step in and make sure that the adolescent is okay? I I feel like um, it's probably a good idea to just have a regular stream of communication and checking in anyway, whether or not you think that your adolescent is particularly not okay or at risk for not being okay. Because by the time somebody is not okay, um, sometimes they are already so isolated or they're closed off to people checking in. And so trying, you know, like the door is already shut or almost shut. And so at that time, a parent and teacher trying to like knock on the door, get in the door, sometimes that's they have a harder job ahead of them compared to if they were already, you know, the door was already open to begin with. And, you know, and so, so they, yeah, the whole way through. So I guess that's the first thing I would say, you know, try to check in and build those positive relationships with communication. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you aren't afraid of, you know, even if you don't think they're at risk, but yes, yeah, some signs that of course come, people have noticed of, you know, big, big changes in eating or sleeping habits. Sometimes uh, something that, yeah, that triggers that that might, might make you wonder if they're at risk or if they're upset about something or if something's going on. Dr. Amori Makami is a professor in the Department of Psychology at UBC. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.